Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now. Runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to The Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot is sponsored by GE Aviation. Well, today we're having a, another episode, which we always enjoy uh, doing when we have a guest especially. It makes our jobs uh, a little easier because we get to make them talk. Um, just want to say uh, thank, you, uh, thank you for tuning in again, and uh, we enjoy uh, uh, having you here each, uh, each episode. Um, today we have with us a gentleman who has a, a really interesting story about his career in aviation and in aviation history. Uh, with us tonight is John Bernstein. Uh, John, I want to thank you for coming and, and coming out and talking attack helicopters with us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. That's pretty awesome. Well, thank you. I just skipped all of our introductions. So. That's okay. I'm yeah. Tom Sharpentier, Government Relations Director, Chris. Oh, I'm sorry. And if you're just tuning in, I'm Chris Henry, the EA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. <laughs> now we'll jump into it. What first sort of sparked your interest in aviation? Um, I was about four years old. And uh, my grandfather pulled out his uh, Army footlocker for the first time, and I was hooked from the get-go. Um, now, he was an infantry officer, um, but he was always telling me stories about, you know, being overseas and everything. And one of the things that really stuck out to me was getting close air support from aircraft. Uh, he swore by P-38s and P-47s and thought they were the greatest things ever. And so my interest in aviation naturally coupled to that. Um, now... Uh, a lot of other things sort of influenced that as well. Um, I uh, see. I went to the National Air and Space Museum when I was eight and turned to my parents and said, hey, I want to live here. Um, so, you know, that, that uh, definitely influenced the museum uh, end, of, end of my, uh, my story as well. Uh, but, you know, I can remember, um, you know, football practice out, out on uh, Reynolds Field in Hastings on Hudson, New York, and we'd get uh, AH-1s flying up and down the Hudson every single day. And I would just inevitably get tackled by somebody or, or, or blocked or something like that. And, and uh, you know, because I was looking at the helicopters as they were flying by rather than paying attention to football. So, um, yeah, uh, aviation's been one of my passions for my whole life. So, and you, now you wrote... Um a couple of books about the Apache helicopter, right? Yep. Um, as, as you, uh, as your kind of your career, uh, went along there. Sure. Um, I actually, the first book I wrote was, uh, was for Osprey publishing. It was on the, uh, the Cobra attack helicopter in Vietnam. And right after I did that, uh, Osprey contacted me and, and, and of course the war in Iraq had just kicked off and they said, well, you know, can you do something on Apaches in Afghanistan and Iraq? And I said, well, you know, I have the, the contacts and everything. Yeah, I could probably do that. And so immediately, like within three weeks, I had a, had a, a contract from England and everything and, and uh, you know, was, was ready to go on this project. And it was, it was definitely uh, an eye-opener. I got to, to see the Apache firsthand. Now, at the time, I was a grad, school, uh, a grad student at uh, Texas Tech. And so I went down to Fort Hood for about four days and uh, was hanging out with uh, 21st uh, Combat Aviation Brigade, uh, which is where they did the Alpha model to Delta model transitions. Um, and got to learn the airplane, got to fly the simulator and everything, and it was really just a, a great experience. You know, here I am, a civilian, and uh, it was pretty much at that moment, and I said, you know what, I have to do this. And so from there, I, uh, <laughs> I don't want to give too much away because, you know, tonight is, uh, you know, I'll get, be getting into it uh, in depth, but uh, pretty much uh, my parents came out to visit me because, uh, you know, family's from New York. I was in Texas, so my parents came out to visit me, and just before they were getting on the plane to, uh, to 
go back to New York. I said, oh, by the way, made a career decision. Um, so I'm, I'm taking things in a new direction, and uh, I joined the Army. And, uh, you know, you can imagine how that went over. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I joined ROTC in, because uh, this is the beginning of 2003, um, enlisted in the Texas Guard in January of 2004, and, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, the, the book led me into my Army career. So you joined the Army with the express intent of, of flying the Apache? Yes, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's, uh, I mean, that, that's pretty amazing to, you know, to, to basically lock in on one airframe and be like, yep, that's it. I'm going to go do that. Yeah. And- <laughs> um, I, was, I was lucky because, uh, you know, I, I had a significant background in, in close air support and, and just you know, knowledge of how it's evolved over the years. And really, you know, honestly, the, the, the airframe was a big draw, but it was more the mission. And honestly, looking back um, at how the Apache's mission has evolved over the past about 17 years, um, it's come back to close air support. But initially, the Apache wasn't doing the close air support mission. The Kiowa was. So it sort of, you know, I didn't want to fly a flying lawnmower, but um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, but Kiowa is a great airplane, and, and I have all the respect in the world for Kiowa pilots. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it, I just, I, I did really want to fly the Apache, but in the close air support mission. You were telling me earlier that there was actually a moment that was, I think there's a photo of yes. you and a crew, and that was. Yeah, that was at Fort Hood in 2002 when I was visiting 21st Cab, and there's a shot of me standing on the e- the the uh, right EFAB, of, uh, which is the, the sponson on the side of the, the uh, cockpit. Uh, so I'm standing there, and the crew's in the cockpit, and they're doing their, their run-ups, and a buddy of mine who's a pilot there took a picture of me, and literally I'm standing there on the, the side of the airplane and just said, you know what, I, I, I need to do this. Why am I not doing this? And that was really the when the decision was made. Was there any doubt in your mind that you'd, that you'd uh, make it through the Apache in the end? No, no. I mean, there were, I, I will say that, that flight training is the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and I was a PhD candidate at the time. So I, I'd been through all of the, the school, you know, all the studying and everything. Studying in flight school was infinitely harder than the PhD program. Um, it's, and then actually flying the aircraft. I mean, they say the Apache is one of the hardest aircraft to fly. Um, and there were times where I was top of the class, and there were times where I was dead last. Um, it just really depended on what we were doing. But, um, you know, they're really getting to, to understand how to make the airplane do what you wanted it to do was a huge challenge. Um, but, yeah, never, never a doubt in my mind that, that it was something that I was going to do, though. So can you walk us through your first uh – experience when you walk into Fort Rucker and you start, you know, training, how did you, how did you take that all in? Can you describe what that was like? Um, I was a kid in a candy store. Uh, I mean, I really was, um, you know, the, the, basically the way flight school was going at the time and I got there right as things were starting to transition. Um, we were in flight school 21, which was a new program. Uh, but basically it was two weeks of uh, junior officer professional development, then on into primary instruments, basic warfighter skills, um, then uh, advanced aircraft. After advanced aircraft, then you went through survival school, and uh, then you went through your last phase of uh, basic, basic officer leaders course, and then got your wings. Um, so I got there in the last week of November of 2005, and uh, we went through JOPD in early December, and then went on Exodus for what three, three, four weeks, something like that. So 
it was like real quick. Uh, I went back home on leave for, for two weeks and then we started back up. Uh, I think I started flight school. Uh, actually, I got delayed. Uh, some of the uh, the guys in my JOPD class went on immediately. I got held back because um, there was an issue with my orders because I was a guard guy and there's always issues with orders. Uh, but I started on, uh, I think it was Valentine's Day, actually, um, and uh, in primary, and uh, it was awesome. Um, the the interesting thing, though, that, that really caught me off guard was rote memorization. Um, you have to have your emergency procedures and aircraft limitations memorized verbatim, like no variation in a single letter, before they will even let you anywhere near the aircraft. And... I'm somebody who, who needs to understand what I'm doing before I can actually do it. So that was really a big challenge. But, um, you know, once I got in the aircraft, I was actually the first one in my class to, to be able to hover, which was really cool. I mean, you know, it was big kudos. And of course, I'm sitting there hovering and everybody else is flying around doing, doing great stuff. And I'm still sitting there trying to fill, figure out how to fly the aircraft. So, it, you know, I, I shot way up real quick and then leveled off and everybody passed me. But, uh, but still, it was, uh, it was a good time. Um, you know, but so what was your what was your training progression like? Like, what kind of aircraft were you flying through training? I uh, started off in the TH sixty seven. Uh, pretty much flew that all the way through uh, the first three phases. Uh, there were some minor variations. Uh, the TH sixty seven Alpha Plus was uh, optimized for low level flight, so it had wire cutters on it and stuff like that. And the uh, the TH sixty seven Alpha um, was the instrument version, and uh, it had you know uh, some upgraded uh, equipment on board uh, specifically for instrument flight. TH sixty seven does that have a uh, does that have a civilian? Yeah, it's a Bell two hundred six. Bell two hundred six standard jet, jet ranger. ranger. Okay. Um, now, in basic warfighter skills, they split the class in half, and half the class flew uh, OH fifty eight Alpha Charlies, and half the class uh, flew TH sixty seven Alpha Pluses. I unfortunately got stuck in TH sixty sevens. I really wanted to fly, uh, you know, baby Kiowas, but uh, didn't get a chance to. So okay, okay. Quick uh, backup, real quick for flying helicopters, because okay. I think this is something that we don't necessarily touch on that much, at least on this podcast. And I would say the the vast majority of our of our EAA members who fly don't fly helicopters. Sure. Um, I know that in some ways it has some stuff, some things in common with, uh, with with fixed wing. In some ways, it has absolutely nothing in common mm-hmm. with fixed wing. Could you run, it th- run us through very quickly? How do you fly a helicopter? Um, well, uh, there there are a lot of euphemisms about flying helicopters. Um, some nice, some not so nice. Um, but uh, you know, it's uh, my favorite one is you know ten thousand uh, parts flying in, in loose formation and waiting for something to break. Um, but you know, flying a helicopter once you're at speed is is almost identical to a, to a fixed wing airplane. Um, it's the vertical component that really um, changes things. And uh, you know, obviously, you're you're, um, and honestly, if you go too fast in you know flying like an airplane, then you get into issues too because of of your rotor system. But uh, you know, basically, um, you're changing. You know, you've got wings just like a regular airplane. They're just spinning, and they're above you. And, uh, you know, the aerodynamics affect those wings the same way. And, of course, when one of those wings is going backwards and not cutting into the air uh, properly, you get differences in lift. And as you get faster, that uh, difference in lift kind of tends to to, um, make your rotor disc uneven, and you get into something called retreating blade stall. Um, So... And that's when you get into that really bad, you know, you, you lose lift completely on one side and you flip over and it's, it's gets ugly. Um, but, you know, uh, the great thing is, you know, you can you also have the ability to auto rotate, which is if you lose engine power, 
you bottom your collective, and which makes the pitch in your blades go flat, and the inertia will keep those blades spinning, as, as will the, uh, the air rushing up through the rotor disc. Um, so then you can cushion your impact uh, when you hit the ground, because you do hit the ground. But, um, but yeah, I mean, auto-rotation, uh, landing auto-rotations was one of the most fun things that I, that I ever did um, in the TH-67. Um, it's just there, there's something about falling out of the sky at, at, at 70 miles an hour and then suddenly stopping it at the end and touching down beautifully. Um, just a lot of fun <laughs> with that. Um, nothing like actually the best type is doing it with, with a turn. Uh, so you're in the downwind leg and you roll the throttle off, drop the, your collective, do a 180 degree turn. Um, so you're almost inverted and bring it on through and, and uh, set it down on, on the, the lane. And man, it's that that's a lot of fun. But I mean, there's a lot you can do with, with a helicopter. Um, obviously, you know, taking off vertically is uh, is one of your biggest advantages. Um, of course, it takes power and, and environmental conditions to be right to always do it. But um, there was one time was, we were down in a hole in uh, southern Alabama, and this was uh, a tiny little LZ, probably a hundred feet across maximum. And it's a really hot day, and it's me and my instructor pilot and my uh, my stick buddy and so he has me back up all the way almost to the tree almost putting the tail rotor in the tree line and pulling max power to, to get out of there and we just couldn't get out and finally I, I took as much of a run at it as I could and I finally got out and cleared the trees but you know the helicopters uh, you know they're weird creatures uh, but you know there's uh, there's a lot you can do with them Chris, you um, actually flew uh, not as as a pilot, but you flew as an observer on medical helicopters uh, earlier in your career. Um, yeah, I what, was were, a, what were some of the, the your thoughts about uh, about flying? Well, I was the manager of flight operations at Stat Medevac out in Pittsburgh, and um, you know, we were an air ambulance, and um, I, I thought they were amazing machines. Um, I think that uh, I was really enjo- I enjoyed the fact that we got to use uh, aviation for good to save lives. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, there's a lot of people that uh, hopefully are alive today because of the helicopter. Um, that was uh, uh, something I was always amazed of. I was always amazed also of, uh, um, you know, just the, the as the technology was, was from the military was coming out to the civilian aviation world, you know, where you saw air ambulances now flying with NVGs, mm-hmm. you know, night vision goggles, and uh, doing more and more stuff. It was, it was a pretty exciting uh, type of flying, I think, to do. Yeah. EC, uh, uh, we ran an EC-135s, EC-145s, and you're talking about power. And I remember that the, there was a big problem, not necessarily with our company, but in general, where EC-145 pilots had so much power, they were taking off on one engine. Wow. Uh, it was just the way the instrumentation was laid out in the aircraft. It, it was very easy to take off on one engine, and you wouldn't even realize you had done it, hmm. except for you had over, I think you'd maybe over-torque something, and that was where the problem lied. Sure. If, you, if you had done it for too long, you'd... You know, you'd, the aircraft would need to be uh, gone through again. Yeah, probably but, up uh, in a transient range uh, limitation, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah sure. exactly. Yeah. It was an impressive machine, though. I, I, 145 was pretty cool. Sure. But, uh, yeah, no, I, it was an impressive time. So, But, um, of course, our EC-145s and 135s are not as impressive as the Apache, which was your goal. Yes. Tell us about the first time you flew an Apache. Um, it, it was kind of embarrassing, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I've written uh, two books on the Apache at that point. Um, I, I'm totally, like, in love with this machine. And, 
my first flight is with CW3 Todd O'Donnell, who is the flight lead for 66 Cav on the Karbala mission on 23 uh, March uh, 2003. Um, I mean, this is one of those guys who I was in awe of. And so I get in and uh, he's like, yeah, all right, we're just going to you know go around the pattern. Too easy. No, no worries. And I'm sitting here going, oh, my God, I'm, I'm in the backseat of an Apache. This is fantastic. Wait, I have to start the engines. Okay. Right. Okay. The, the switches are over there. I've got this. Okay. I can do it. So first thing I do, you know, it's like, all right, I'm starting on one and, um, normal procedures, which I learned very quickly was you have to call everything out. So I hit the starter and I'm like, he's like, and, and what the engine's coming up. Say, like, all right, here we go. You need to tell me what's coming up, how it's coming up, what's going on. Okay. So finally, you know, fumfer through that, get it done. Um, so, all right, get cleared to, to taxi to, to the end of the, the lane, cleared for takeoff. All right, just, you know, do a, do a quick pattern. All right, so pattern altitude is 700 feet MSL. Cool. So I, I take off and um, you have transition, you had to rather uh, flight modes in uh, on your symbology. So immediately from the hover, you take, you switch from hover mode to transition mode and then to flight mode. Well, I didn't switch to flight mode. So I'm sitting there and I switched to, uh, to trans- transition mode and I'm sitting there at 700 feet. He goes, um, you need to get down to 700 feet. Uh, what? It's, it's, you're 700 feet AGL right now. It's 700 feet MSL. Oh, so I was like 300 feet high. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Well, and when you switch to flight mode, it switches to, uh, to MSL. So yeah, it was a little embarrassing, but you know, I got through it and, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was amazing. Um, I actually have a fl- uh, shot of me about to get in the helicopter. It's me, uh, Todd, and, and my buddy Les, who I flew with uh, throughout uh, flight throughout the Apache program, and then uh, on into the Pennsylvania Guard. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's uh, it was definitely an inter- interesting first flight. So when we had Megan, uh, we had Megan on here, who was an F-14 pilot, and that was her dream was the Tomcat. Mm-hmm. And she said, you know, when you sometimes when you build something up so big. Uh, and then you finally get it that, you know, it doesn't hit that expectation because you've built it up so big in your head. Sure. And she said the Tomcat uh, certainly was not that way, that, that it really was just as cool as a dream. Would you say the Apache was that way? Yes and no. Um, it absolutely was that cool. Um, I loved it. I loved every minute flying it. Um, the intense studying that I had to do constantly in order to stay proficient because, you know, as a, as a traditional guardsman, I was only flying a few days out of the month. So I had to stay sharp in everything because I was under that much more scrutiny. If I screwed up something, if I forgot an EP or a limit, I I would have to start my RL progression, which is readiness level progression over again. And, you know, it was not something that, that I I was willing to do. Uh, So as you as you're training up on the Apache, you have to do. Um, I mean, you have you have to learn how to maneuver the aircraft in combat and instrument conditions, right? Is that, no, that's part of, no, you don't. No, okay. actually, you don't. Excellent, uh, and that's that's something a lot of people don't realize. The okay. the Alpha and the Delta models were not instrument rated. Really, it was actually an emergency procedure if we got into IMC. Wow. Yeah. Huh. Um, now with the new Echo model, I believe that has been changed. Okay. 
um, but just because of equipment on the uh, on the airplane and and how the instruments were were really uh, especially on the uh, on the D model with with your uh, multi-purpose displays rather than than uh, uh, steam gauges, uh, the Army was not willing to certify it. Um, but also, uh, forget about it. as far as far as nav aids go, we only had NDB. We didn't have any any VOR receiver or anything like that. And I believe the Echo model does have that. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was really. Um, you know, GPS um, could be used for navigation, but not not under emergency procedures. So it was very strange. But no, we couldn't. I didn't know that. I thought yeah. I thought you trained under the bag for the Apache. The bag is different. Okay. The bag is learning to fly the night vision system. Oh, okay. Okay, that makes um, more sense. And the bag is absolutely of of all the hard stuff I've done. Yeah. The bag is the hardest. Okay. Um, in fact, you know, I'm gonna gonna show the scene in Firebirds for for my. Uh, for my talk later but um bag phase was a nightmare it was the one time i may have come close to maybe saying this isn't for me because all right we started flying bag at the end of november of uh no sorry beginning of december of 2006 so we had two weeks and then went on on exodus but now, maybe it was November. Anyway, um, they split ha- our class in half. We had 16 guys in the class. Half sat for two weeks, half flew for two weeks. Sorry. Um, I was sat for the first two weeks. And then, so just before winter exodus, I had maybe five flights in the bag. Um, still trying to figure out what all the symbology means, and not even that what I can do with it, but just trying to figure out you know what it means. And then I go on uh, exodus for 30 days. And then I come back, and I have literally three flights and a check ride. And so it was, it was a nightmare. Uh, it was just, in fact, I remember taking off, um, and, uh, from on my bag check ride with Dan St. Peter's in the front seat. And I said, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, I, I really, I, I'm not comfortable with this at all. And he said, all right, just, you know, fly your, your mission profile and, and, you know, we'll do this. All right. So I'm decent, you know, in free flight, but when it came close to the ground, I mean, I was just all ate up. And so we came back. He's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to recommend you for, you know, a couple extra hours of retraining and, and you'll be fine. But, yeah, you really need to work on this. So, you know, I had, I think, another two or three flights, whatever, and then I rechecked. And I rechecked with Rick Pollock, who was one of the original Apache pilots. Uh, he's one of the guys who flew in Firebirds and um, just one of the guys who was, like, the wealth of knowledge about the Apache. And so Rick looks at me and goes, all right. You passed. I said, what? He goes, you passed. You're going to be fine. Stop being nervous. Stop being stupid. Get in the airplane and fly. Okay, sure. So we went out and we flew. And at the bottom of Hanchi, uh, Hanchi Airfield is sort of, uh, it's where the attack uh, birds fly out of. And it's on top of a plateau. And there's sort of tiers down. And you've got the, the airfield and then parking lots. And then at the bottom, there's an open field. And in the middle of that open field is a mound. And uh, quite often you'll see the Chinooks come in there and, and do slope landings on it. And it's, it's probably a 30-degree slope. Uh, it's, it's a big slope. So as we're coming back in, he calls tower and says, uh, yeah, we're going to divert to the slope area. We are? Okay. So um, he goes, all right, go down and land on the slope. And I'm sitting here going, all right, I've just f- finally gotten somewhat comfortable with the bag phase. And now I have to go down there and land on this monster slope that's going to put my rotor in the ground. And so I'm like, all right, but, you know, 
all right, we're going to do this. So I go hover over to it, set my right main on it, and start letting pressure down. And so I've got the right main pretty much squashed down uh, on the, uh, you know, on, on the slope. And he's like, all right, just set her down. And I'm sitting here, and I'm just tense as anything, you know, slowly, slowly lowering the collective, and uh, you know, finally feel feel that that uh, left main touch, and it's like, I did it, I, I landed it on this monster slope, and I took, you know, bottomed out the collective, took my, I had to take my hand off the collective and wave to him, uh, and uh, you know, he had the, uh, and, and it was just like, you know, hey, I, I did this, so. And, uh, you know, it was, it was pretty amazing. And from there on, you know, it was much better, you know, knowing that, that I could, uh, you know, I could actually handle the airplane, you know, under the bag, under the night vision system and, uh, you know, be fine about it. That, that kind of shows a little bit of my ignorance. I, I thought that the bag was always a specific, uh, same purpose across all different types of aircraft and, you know, in fixed wing, it's, it's an IFR trainer rather, uh, mostly. No, cause you're, you're literally flying off of the video picture. Uh, and you're on your HDU. Wow. So you can see everything the forward-looking infrared can see. But um, so you're really not um, visually impaired at all. It's just getting used to where your eye is, which is, you know, seven feet in front of you and three feet below you. Oh, jeez. Yeah. <laughs> now, so that rectangle that you're looking through, mm-hmm. um, when you're looking through that, is the center in front of the helicopter moving? Yes. That? Is that... Um, you know, there are two sensors on the nose of the helicopter. Um, when you're in the bag, in the back seat, you're using the PINVIS, or pilot's night vision system, uh, which is the top turret. And that actually moves, that will track as fast as your head goes. Um, the bottom turret, the big barrel thing, is your, your TADS, or your uh, target acquisition and designation site. That's uh, controlled by the front seater. Uh, and that moves slightly slower than your head moves. So you'll t- whip your head around, and it'll take a second for it to, to get there. But it gets there pretty quick. Um, basically, the way it works is there are two sensors behind your seat, um, sort of over your shoulders, that fan out this IR energy, and they track two sensors on either side of your helmet. And so whenever you turn your head, that IR energy is interacting with those sensors and, uh, and figuring out where you're looking. Now, is the, is the front seater in the, the Apache the gunner? Is that who controls the gun? Your front seater is your, your co-pilot gunner. Um, you can fly the airplane e- easily from both seats. Um, you're full. The only thing you can't do in the front seat is start the engines. The only thing you can't do in the back seat is shoot the laser. But other than that, it's, it's pretty much the same thing. What's it like working in a two-person team like that? Crew coordination. Um, I mean, that's one thing we are beaten over the head with from the get-go, and it is absolutely a lifesaver. Crew coordination is critical. Um, and I can tell you, there, there was one time I, I was taxiing in with my company commander one night, and we were in the spot, and, you know, I thought I had transferred the controls, and uh, he didn't, and suddenly we were rolling forward. Now, I stepped on, on the brakes real quick and, you know, got us undercover, but I was positive. I had said, hey, you have the controls, and he replied. But, you know, it's one of those things where you absolutely need three-way positive transfer of controls. You need to talk constantly. Um, you know, like I said earlier about starting the engines. I mean, standard call-outs are, you know, po- looking for positive rise of uh, NP oil pressure and TGT within, thir- within 45 seconds and start a drop. I'm screwing it up. Looking for positive rise of NP oil pressure and TGT within 45 seconds, start a drop out by 52%. I mean, that's one of those things you call out every single time. And if you don't get that, then, you know, immediately you both have to, to react. So uh, crew coordination all the way. 
in the army, do you have? Um, are, are you usually with the the same uh, front seater uh, on every flight, no. or do they switch it up? No, it's switched up uh, okay. all the time. So yeah, I mean, it, they weren't set crews at all. The uh, the front seater when you move your when he moves his head does it does the gun move with him? Uh, right? Yeah, if you've actioned the gun, um, you have a weapons action switch on uh, on the uh, pilot in the back seat has it on his uh, cyclic, and the uh, the front seater has it on the uh, on the ORT or the TDAC depending on which uh, version you're flying. Uh, and then once that that weapon is wazed or weapon action switched, uh, so once you waz the weapon, it will track your head. So, which is pretty awesome, especially when you're coming in on a rocket run. Um, so you've got your backseater firing rockets, and as the front seater, you, you uh, cover your, bra- your own your own brake as you break over the target with the 30 millimeter. So that's a lot of fun. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. That's, yeah, that's pretty much the coolest thing I'll hear all day. <laughs> I mean, I just came from a pretty special meeting, but that's still going to be way cooler than that. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, now I understand that you did. You know, you said you like to do things backwards. Yes. And one of the things you did is you went from the D back to the A, and then there were some challenges with that. The D model back to the A model. Yeah. Um, I, I flew D models in in uh, flight school, and then went to my unit, which was an Alpha model unit. And uh, interesting. Um, you know, I got back to the unit in July of 2007, and uh, September October of 2007, Big Army said no more Alpha models are going downrange. So it was, okay, what are we doing now? Um, So we continued to fly alpha models until we got deltas. um, But I had to to learn how to fly the alpha. So they did a a, a special six-week course out in Marana, Arizona. A bunch of us uh, from from my crop of pilots went. And uh, the symbology is different. Uh, a lot of things that are really similar about about the aircraft. It, it handles uh, very similarly, a little faster, a little more responsive because uh, it's lighter. But um, you know, it was it was a great helicopter to fly. The only thing I really missed was um, the flight path vector, which was one of those pieces of symbology. Uh, we joked around and called it our, our point of impact reference because uh, that basically was um, a piece of symbology where you know and you're, when you're shooting an approach you put your flight path vector on your intended point of touchdown and you will sh- and you adjust your your uh, rate of descent accordingly and you will shoot a perfect approach every single time alpha model didn't have that so learning how to shoot an approach in the alpha model became a big challenge and uh my ip there uh, yelled at me quite a bit because he said you keep dipping the nose you're going to get us killed stop that so uh yeah it was uh, something i had to to relearn which was kind of funny so john in addition to flying uh, apaches um you do have a day job as well yes um, i do uh, tell us a little bit about your your career outside of Army Aviation. I started my museum career in 1991. Uh, started working at the Intrepid Museum my senior year in high school and have been uh, doing that ever since. Um, while I was uh, flying in the Guard, I was also the director of the National Guard Educational Foundation in D.C., which is basically the, the National Guard Museum in D.C. And uh, since 2012, I've been at Fort Sill, uh, Oklahoma, as the director of the uh, U.S. Army Air Defense Artillery Museum. So I went from flying them to learning about things that would would pretty much be trying to kill me. Uh, so it's been uh, it's definitely been interesting um, seeing things from the air defense side uh, now. Uh, but it's been a really good experience, and uh, you know I'm getting to build my own museum at this point. So it's been uh, pretty awesome. So, well, John, I can't thank you enough for coming all the way up here. Uh, we even melted the snow for your visit. So uh, hopefully uh, you're enjoying that. Oh, even. definitely. And uh, tonight, uh, like I said, when you guys listen to this, it'll have already passed, but we are doing a speaker series uh, where John is our, our keynote speaker tonight. Um, for all of you tuning in again, we just want to say thank you. Uh, thank you for leaving your comments. 
whether you're uh, commenting on EAA channels here or uh, leaving us good reviews on iTunes uh, or wherever you get your uh, your podcast, we appreciate it. Those uh, reviews certainly help. And uh, again, we just want to say thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Green Dot.